Welcome to episode 478 with my friend Kenny. Today's episode is brought to us by Squarespace. Turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. So head to squarespace.com mental for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code mental to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod, also the social media handles that you can follow me slash the show at. Um, I'm going to read a couple of surveys. This is from the Love Survey, uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Molly McGuire. And if you guys are new to the show, uh, the surveys can be accessed at our website. There's about a dozen different ones that, that you can fill out, and um, that really helps I think, uh, expand the scope of the show. And I learned so much from, from reading these. Uh, again, this is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Molly McGuire. And she writes, I love while I'm trying to fall asleep, picturing myself hovering just a few inches above the mattress. I have no idea why, but it's the most peace, peaceful thing in the world to me. I look forward to going to bed every night and calming myself down this way. That is fantastic and I also love when I get one that I've never heard before and that one is a first this is an awful moment uh, and we've read this one on the podcast before but it's been a while and I, I just really like it it's filled out by a woman who calls herself Fran Baxter and she writes I lost my husband to suicide a few weeks ago I know just bear with me. It gets better. He ended his years-long battle with chronic pain and depression on his terms, being kind enough to spare me from having to find him or identify his body. I forgive him, even though I miss him dearly. He's out of pain and with a lot of people he admired and cats that we loved. A dear friend who was a lover before I met my husband came over today on his way to visit a relative. I wanted to experience intimacy with someone I trusted as a way of helping me grieve, and my friend was happy to oblige me. We had no set expectations except showing each other enthusiastic consent. I had a feeling I'd cry a few times, and in parentheses, sense memory triggers, and I did. My friend was as kind and loving as he was nearly half my life ago. After the really great sex was over, I could faintly hear my husband's voice. See, I told you my cock wasn't as special as you thought it was. You came just as easily now as you did with me. I couldn't help but laugh and share that with my friend. My husband knew me better than I knew myself sometimes, and it is awfulsome to know that he was right about this too. It is also awfulsome to be able to fuck another man again because my marriage vows have expired. <laughs> that is the definition of awfulsome. 
This is an email I got from a guy uh, who refers to himself as Mulberry. And he writes, uh, I was wondering, are there any episodes about how to be helpful to a friend in an abusive relationship? What's helpful versus not helpful? Is getting in a screaming match with your friend's partner ever helpful? Or is it better to de-escalate at moments of abuse and focus on supporting the friend? I've had a couple of friends who've been in violently abusive relationships, and I've intervened slash given shelter slash refused entrance to the abuser. Neither of the relationships ended because of my interventions, and it was scary to feel like my friends weren't protected when I wasn't around. I have feelings of guilt around not being able to protect them, even though I know I did the right things at the time. I know abusive relationships only truly end when the person being abused decides they want out. But are there better ways or best practices to support a friend through an abusive relationship? And I wrote him back and said, um, first of all, those are great questions. And just a couple of things that popped into my mind, because this is a hugely complex, you know, issue. And just some things that popped into my mind are, it's important to be aware of the differences between support and trying to change someone. And yelling at their partner is is not helpful, in in my opinion. Opinion. I think something important for you to consider is being aware of your trying to help turning into codependence slash enmeshment. It's a fine line, but support groups around codependence, uh, like CODA, which I understand is great, might be helpful to navigate it. And sometimes helping a friend is helping a friend, and sometimes it's a way to not face our own life or our own painful past experiences. So those are those are my my thoughts on it. And the other option is just throw lots of punches at the abuser and then quietly leave town. I have not tried that one, so I can't say whether or not it's good. But you get to experience a new apartment. This is from the love survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Idiot Disaster Fucker. And he loves the world of Warcraft, where you can exercise introversion and being a social butterfly at the same time. That is fantastic. And he comments to make the podcast better, more nudity. I've been thinking about adding more nudity to it. And just in preparation for it, I do the podcast shirtless, and uh, I've shaved my chest. And I don't know if I'm ready to oil it yet maybe I'll start with a nice cream <laughs> that sounds so creepy this is from the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself Beck is always wrong and about his depression my depression feels like someone's kicking me when I'm not looking and I can't figure out where all the bruises are coming from but they hurt and everyone says they aren't there about his ADD Feels like I have a thousand tabs open in Internet Explorer and none of them will completely load because they're all going at once. About his anxiety. My anxiety feels like there's constantly a monkey behind me making fun of me and I'm the only one who can't see it. Oh, that is so good. About his love addiction. It feels like everyone else is in on a secret and if I can just fall in love with the right person, I'll figure out the secret too about his codependency. 
It feels like I'm wandering around a store trying to find my mom, and I keep stopping to help other people find their moms in hopes that that will help me find my mom, but it turns out I don't even have a mom. That one is so good and so, oh my God, so deep. Thank you for that. And about his anger issues, it feels like someone keeps poking me with hot needles and I'm trying to take it and let it go, but eventually I can't. And when I eventually scream, the person with the needle starts crying and now I'm the bad guy. Snapshot from his life, when we start When we started talking about divorce, the first thing my ex-husband said was, well, my mom will be happy. She doesn't like you anyway. He had always sworn she liked me when I knew she didn't, and it made me feel crazy. And learning she didn't just confirmed that everyone is only pretending to like me. And that is one of the ways that we really do a disservice to ourselves is Okay, something may be true. There may be some painful truth that we discover, and then we extrapolate it in this black and white thinking. Oh, if one person doesn't like me, then everybody hates me. Uh, one of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. Uh, I'm a huge fan of it, and if you've never tried it, uh, it's really nice not having to leave your house to do it via video or uh, audio or text or live chat, uh, whatever you choose. And if you want to know more, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. Then fill out a questionnaire, and if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you, and you need to be over 18. We also have a new sponsor, omgyes.com. There's a new study out of uh, the Indiana University School of Medicine uh, in partnership with OMGYES that shows that people get a significant boost in seemingly unrelated things like overall life optimism and self-confidence from shifting their perspective about sexual pleasure. And omgyes.com is a website designed precisely to trigger this kind of reevaluation, exploration, and inspiration. In partnership with Indiana University and Kinsey Institute researchers, they asked tens of thousands of women, what was the one discovery you've made that really made your pleasure better? And then they found the patterns in those discoveries and they organized all of that stuff into a website, omgyes.com, so everyone can make a great thing even better, women, men, and couples. Visit omgyes.com slash mental to learn more and for a special discount. That's omgyes.com slash mental. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by Caroline, and she writes, I love heavy snow. You hear my teeth just whistle? <laughs> like a, like an old cowboy western. Heavy snow. I'm originally from Northern Europe, but live in the Netherlands. In my home country, there would be these days a few times a year where it snowed heavy and fast. Fist-sized soft snowflakes dropping from the sky so fast you can't see more than 10 meters ahead. On those days, I'd take my German shepherd, Oldie, and walk for hours. Not a person in sight and everything pure white. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I love the muffled quality of 
fresh snow, how it sounds don't echo as much. And then finally, this is a struggle in the sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Silver Liner. And she writes about her depression, sleeping for 20 hours and still feeling tired. About her anxiety, imaginary needles pricking all over my body. About her compulsive eating, food coma feels like happiness until you wake up. And about her love addiction, I love you more than anything on this world. Until you love me back, then there must be something wrong with you. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks people. for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with uh, my friend Kenny, who I've known for, I don't know, probably what, eight, ten years? Something like that? Crazy. Well, I think it's at least, oh yeah, definitely 10 years. Yeah. I, I don't know what. Maybe Gra- more. Gracie was completely quiet until I hit the, the record button. And uh, of course now she wants all kind of attention. Uh, I've been wanting to sit down and uh, record an episode with you, Kenny, for a while because uh, you told me a little bit about your childhood uh, a couple of times and <laughs> it's pretty dramatic. You you grew up in, well, let Let's start with you sharing what your childhood was like and some memories that you that you have. Where'd you grow up? Okay. So, um, thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in, in Hell's Kitchen, New York City, west side of Manhattan on 10th Avenue. Um, and you're how old? I'm 46. Okay. So, I grew up in the, when I was a baby, like a little kid in the uh, in the 70s and then in the 80s I was you know in my teens and I was in my prime in the 90s mm-hmm. but all on the west side um I grew up in an Irish Puerto Rican household my neighborhood was predominantly Irish and um so and and my my mother was Irish so naturally the and my, my father was really never not around much mm-hmm. so naturally because of the neighborhood being predominantly irish and my mother being irish um most of my cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents that came in and out of our house were of my mother's side so mm-hmm. it was all mostly an irish um influence i'd say yeah. um and was there any um, prejudice towards your father for being Puerto Rican, or for you and your siblings for being half Puerto Rican? I think that I think there was. Um, I think there was, and I definitely I can I can say that um, I was never really proud of my last name. I never liked it. I, you know, I, I saw a lot of kids growing up who, took, who who were who had their mother's last name. 
Mm-hmm. And I never, and I always wish I had my mother's last name, not my, my not my father's last name, because my last, you know, my last name is a strong Latin ha- last name. Right. And my mother's is a pretty strong Irish last name. Right. And all my friends were Irish. You know what I mean. I had I had some Puerto Rican friends, but there was the guys I hung around with were all you know from the you know the west side and and irish guys and so i i really um uh gravitated uh to that uh ethnicity mm-hmm. i'd say uh didn't know a word of spanish um except the curses you learn that in the street and shit you know what i right. mean and in school and stuff so i knew how to say some pretty funny curses <laughs> in spanish but that was it and what what did your dad do for uh, a living? Um, up till probably I'd say the age of till I was probably the age of maybe seven or eight. My father worked at a photo lab, developing eight by eleven photos taken by I guess photographers mm-hmm. and. He he he'd bring home eight by eleven pictures of athletes and stars, and he was just in the back then, you know, developing photos. Yeah, it was all. So done this now. was a professional photo lab as opposed to a consumer kind of photo. Yeah, lab it was board. professional. It was huge, yeah. a bit industrial, yeah. I'd say. Gotcha. It was a huge photo lab, and he ran the presses or whatever and stuff like that. I, I mean, and in fact, he was he must have been doing it for. A good amount of time prior to even my me being born, I'd say, because the 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 boss of the photo lab became my godfather, and I never, I don't even, I mean, I know his first name, I never seen him, I haven't seen the guy since I was probably seven or eight years old. And what did your dad do after that? Um, did he live with you guys? Yeah, he he lived with us. There, there was uh, I, I there was three boys and three girls, and uh. And my father was working at a photo lab. My mother was just a stay-at-home mom, taking care of the kids and stuff like that. And uh, my father was uh, an alcoholic. His his uh, go-to drink was Bacardi rum. He used to walk around with it in his back pocket. He was he he was the his image. The image of of my father as a kid was uh, a brown paper bag with a back pocket-sized bottle of. Uh, Bacardi rum tucked in the back in the back where he would be taking swigs, tattoos up and down his his arms, and a white t shirt rolled up with a pack of Marlboro tucked in the top uh, top part of his shoulder carrying right. his, his Marlboro cigarettes. Uh, and he was pretty pretty good shape, you know. Um, and uh, he he had a he had an alcohol problem. It was it was, it was pretty bad. He. Uh, he would get paid on Fridays and um, not not come home till Sunday. Like he'd, he'd get his check, and we wouldn't. My mother wouldn't see him till Sunday, and he'd come in the door ossified, drunk on Sunday, with no money, and it it would be the beginning of uh, domestic violence in my house. My mother would get beat up pretty badly, um, and. Uh, it, that was a that was a norm the normal like the the beatings that he he gave my mother were pretty bad 
Um, one time, uh, my mother was trying to get me and my brothers into the shower. It's like, get in the shower, get in the shower. You know, we're kids, so we didn't want to get in the shower. We're like, we used to go, I'm first, I'm, I'm last, I'm second, third. Mm. Oh, I'm, I'm last, I'm second. So whoever whoever said second, then the first, whoever didn't say nothing had to go first. So it sucked when, you know, when when you wound up being first because you had to stop what you were doing and get in the shower right now. And, the, and the, the, whoever said I'm last would be able to chill for a little while. Mm. So my mother was, we were arguing over getting in the shower. My mother was screaming at us and um the doorbell rang or or there was a knock at the door and um my father my mother goes to the door and opens the door and my father he goes what the fuck is all this screaming about and he I, didn't have a key to the apartment no he, he didn't have a key had he moved out at that point i don't or? you know um no he didn't move out he lived there oh okay and he didn't have a key, but he either knocked or, or rang the bell. Gotcha. Or, you know, I, don't, I know he didn't. I know he didn't have a key because he, maybe he did. He, he was drunk. Anyway, besides the point. But she said, "What?" He, she opens the door, and I'm I'm in a line. I'm in line of sight. I could see the door. I see who's who's at the door. I was standing in the hallway, and I could look down the hallway and see who it was. And I I, I watched this happen. Um. She opens the door. He goes, "What the fuck is all the screaming going on in here?" And I think my mother said, oh, shut the fuck up, or, you know, or shut, or shut up. And he just dropped her with a hook. Bang, right, right, right in the eye. She doubled over into like a turtle position, and he, and he had a cane, and he swung the cane and broke it over her back. Snapped it in half. Jesus. Right over my mother's back, snapped the cane in half. Uh, and I watched it, you know what I mean? And, um,. And it was our fault, you know. My mother just got her shit beat up because we wouldn't get in the shower. And she was screaming at us, you know. Did uh, did she say to you that it was your fault or that's what you told no, yourself? No, she didn't say that. Yeah. I felt I felt like it was my fault because me and my brothers were arguing. And what what went through your mind at, at that time when you saw your father do that about who he was and your relationship with him? And how you felt about him after that? When he broke the cane over her back, um, and the shit snapped, snapped like a toothpick right across her back. Um, I don't remember, man. I got, I got. If I, if I, if I could remember, I'd say I was kind of numb. Which I think is pretty common when when brains get overloaded with stuff. Yeah. That's a pretty pretty common. I had a numbness about me. Yeah. I, I didn't, I, I don't think I had, I mean, I'm sure I was scared, but as far as being able to really identify with the feelings, right. I don't, I don't, I don't think there was any, there, I'm sure there was a little bit of fear for my mother, but that might've been it. And so then what happened uh, after your dad Stop doing the photo lab thing. Well, how he stopped doing the photo lab is the weekend drinking continued, and uh, one weekend, we're, it turns out, um, well, before I tell you this, I'll say that um, my father was a, a womanizer and a cheater and an alcoholic, and not just the weekend drinking that was mm -hmm. taking place. There were things going on in the, during the week and every day that, that created other 
fights, like him coming home with hickeys all around his neck from other women. My mother hearing from other people in the neighborhood that my father's walking down the street holding someone else's hand. Um, and, uh, so those were, that's who he was. And, and then the drinking and everything was, uh, just high, high, uh, high level. And then, uh, one weekend he gets out of work and he, he used to hang out with all the Puerto Ricans in the, in the parking lot on the West side. It was a, back then they had a lot of parking lots in the city, you know, now it's all covered over and built in with, with high rises and shit. Uh, but this one particular parking lot, all the Puerto Ricans used to sit in the middle of it because they ran the, the parking of the cars as they came in and stuff. And they'd sit there and play dominoes. And a car went out of control in the parking lot and ran and hit and just smashed through the dominoes table and hit everybody that was in in striking distance. Uh, and my father was one of them. And um, he broke a bunch of ribs and his leg and uh, was uh, pretty badly injured. Had a leg. He had a cast from his toes up to his hip, uh, broken ribs and everything. <clears throat> so now he's home. <laughs> And uh, bedridden and whatever. And uh, that was the beginning of some pretty dark days. Like, they were, it was already fucked up. But after he, after that happened, he um, he, he, he was out of work for, for quite a while. And um, then he lost his job. That's that's the that's what I rem how I remember it. Mm. Uh, I don't know if he lost his job, probably got fired, laid off, whatever. But mm. I know he didn't. I know he was out for a while because of the injury, uh, and, and his legs his leg was jacked up, his ribs were jacked up. In fact, um, that might have been that might have happened before the sh the incident where he broke the cane over a back because he had a cane. You understand? Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, so he had the cane, so he was already injured. It was at, it was post injury where yeah. he he broke the the, the um the cane over her back, so he was already fired and he was you know on the street, and it was it was the eighties and uh, crack hit, crack cocaine and um, he just uh, I don't know how because I was too young to remember, but he and I wasn't really uh, I was I was I was still in the house and and so out in the street uh he was engaging in all these activities with uh with um pimping and prostitution and and uh drugs and crack and heroin and everything and selling it selling it and and doing it he became yeah. he it eventually i'm sure it started with selling mm -hmm. trying to make money because he had no job and then the next thing and then he became his best customer and started consuming uh, massive amounts of, you name it, and uh, I, I remember. Um, so he was strung out on crack and living in crack houses. And back then, crack houses were were pretty new. Like you, like a crack house was something that was all of a sudden a thing. Like mm -hmm. they didn't exist like that. They might have been shooting galleries and shit for heroin addicts, but like a crack house was 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 new. It was it was a place where people just hung out and smoked fucking crack, you know. And my father was thrown out of my house and was like a, a, a like a super in the in a building on Forty Eighth Street 
and running the building, maintaining the building. It was how he was. It's how he was uh, being able to stay there. He had, my my mother threw him out, and uh, she would send. Oh, so he he started to he started my father started to get arrested from doing drugs and mm. and crime and he would get he got sentenced to prison time and he'd go away and he'd come and he'd do a year or two come home and in that time he used to, he was up in state prison carving out these like hearts and fucking uh um really nice like crafty uh um like pieces that he would carve out of out of, out of soap oh soap right. he would carve it out of soap and write in it and paint it and shellac it and do all these creative shit things with bars of soap and send them home to, to us and my mother we thought it was the greatest thing in the world these little fucking these little you know um tinkets or whatever you, i don't know what they were what you would call them but they were they were they were carvings they were they were um you know like molds mm -hmm. did you keep any of them we had a bunch of them but you know they were they were very fragile yeah, I don't have any, but that'd be something if they if there was some still around. Um, he made these these things and uh, he'd send them home, and then you know, obviously, he, my mother's got six kids with the guys, so they would you know start to talk, and uh, we'd go up to state prison to visit him. You know, what's that like visiting your dad in prison? It was it was kind of strange, you know. You go up, you see your father; he's all healthy and shit, and and, and you know, he's got a little prison build on him and he's fine got some food in him uh he's in state greens and you know uh you know you're happy you haven't seen him for a while you know and and uh he you know and you know you got other kids there and there's a bus ride involved and you know going through going through all of the security and everything that was pretty pretty interesting it's it's um it's all just um not normal for kids or anybody like anyone who's got to go through that process you have to go through some, some you have to experience some extra changes some shit that doesn't make sense also the fact that your dad looks better in prison than he does out of prison you know oh, that's yeah. that's kind of odd oh yeah real good clean clear skin just um well groomed um and so go ahead so um we'd go to see him in prison and him and my mother would be, we'd start writing he'd write my mother from prison and they'd you know try to work things out she'd she'd give him another chance and, he'd, and so she wasn't seeing anybody they weren't not that officially I know. divorced no they were never married okay not that i know of as far as i know my mother would my mother never um was not she if she was if she was ever with anyone else it wasn't something that anyone knew about right it, it seemed to us like she was just doing her job as a mother and so when he wasn't earning how was she oh, supporting she, you guys she was on welfare yeah we knew everything about face-to-face -face, section eight not section eight face-to-face -face, uh she had to go down to the welfare and and uh you know uh she she always had to keep up to date with uh with uh, the welfare system, and they were, we we were on food stamps, and um, <clears throat> you know I was I mean there were people who had food stamps, but uh, I just I it was it was fucking embarrassing, dude. In front of my it, it, there were a lot of kids in my neighborhood and in my, in the street and in the stores and in the bodegas, and you come downstairs with some food stamps in your hands and you buy some shit, 
you're going to be made fun of, you know? So I would stand in the back, act like I forgot what I needed to buy and be looking around and all my friends and wait for somebody I knew who was in the store to leave. And then once they left, I'd go up to the counter and try to make my purchase real fast because I don't want no one to see me with the food stamps. I would Im- I imagine that to this day, shame is a pretty common emotion for you. Oh, yeah, for sure. It wasn't just that. We had head lice. In my, me and my brothers, it was six of us. We got sent home for head lice probably 10, 15, 20 times a year for, from first, fucking first grade up to, you know, probably sixth grade. Um, I mean, it was embarrassing getting pulled out of class, fucking them running ice cream sticks through your hair to check because they don't want to touch the bugs in your head. And then all of a sudden, you know, you, so it was so hard for my mother to manage it because there were six of us. And the shits right. would jump from one head to another. She's all alone. She's got to run, you know, put head bug shampoo in all our heads. She's got to use the, the, the lice comb and all that shit. And uh, so that was traumatizing, you know, the food stamps, the fucking head lice, um, the filth, the roaches. Yo, you don't know what you don't know. Roaches, a roach infestation. I mean, you could say you do, but I, I fucking lived it. I'm talking. They were in the pictures. They were, they were in every single dark place that 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 they could be. And if you turned the lights off, for and then you came out later on and you turned them lights on, they were everywhere, everywhere on a stove, on the counters, on the floor, scattering roach infestation. Not only. So we had that. We had head lice. Um, we were on food stamps. My mother, she did the best she could. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm sure she, there was, there are people with more motivation and energy that can probably maintain a, a home or a household mm-hmm. better than that. But I don't know if she, I don't know what she was going through or what she was experiencing. I know that that's the way it was. Did you, how would you cope with, the emotions that would come up in you. Drugs, violence. Well, <clears throat> violence for sure. Violence for sure. Because uh, my mother my mother had five brothers. Um, they were all knock-around guys. What does that mean? Bang- bangers, fighters, brawlers. Uh, not pushovers. Street guys. My father was a street guy who had who also had about five brothers um and then there was me and my brothers and we we would experience and learn how to f- just fight on each other you know was it encouraged by the men in your family or absolutely yeah. address the issue never let no one step on your toes um strike first strike hard um don't let no one play you would be a phrase. Um, and so, um, violence was something I, I took, took, uh, took to first, I'd say. Um, did you find a release? In I it? did a huge, huge release. Talk about that. Talk if there are any moments you can remember where the emotions, uh, were strong <laughs> once you decided to, 
respond with violence? What what would you think or feel? I mean, it was such an amazing feeling, um, Paul. I got to tell you, um, you know, I didn't know. It took me a while. It took me a, year, a few years to realize that unleashing all this bottled up anger and pain on another individual was going to release it was going to give me ability to let let the you know the air out a little bit i didn't know that until i and when i did i definitely wanted more of it um uh was I would say? it mostly be with your fists initially yes and then whatever is in my in my in reach um and and there was no there was no boundaries or limits or or hesitation it was just nothing nothing i was an animal dude i was i was a i was just like a a gremlin you know what i mean um there was a time also that i i was afraid to put my hands on somebody i never wanted to hurt nobody i was just a little kid it's like i don't want to hurt nobody you know i was just a kid and then all those things start to happen and then uh you know you have all the shame this guilt this fear this anger and uh and this abandonment and loneliness and um and then when you and it's you have so then you have all this built up tension and emotion and then uh you know i started I, kids in the neighborhood wouldn't make fun of you ah, he got sent home for about headlights today um ah he look at a food stamp welfare recipient you know um your father's a fucking your father was walking down the street with a prostitute, ha, you know. Um, so when shit like that happened, um, and I, I was, I wasn't. I you was, would punch people. I, I would strike. I would beat the shit out of somebody, um, and I was very angry, very angry. Um, but I would say, you know, you have your little kid, your little elementary school scraps where you kind of learn a little bit about the the art of engagement and stuff like that and physical physical uh conflict but uh it got worse it, it uh it got bad because so i'll get back to my father coming at home from prison and um father come home from prison so my father's come home from prison and the cycle would repeat itself mm -hmm. crack drugs crack houses prison do a state sentence, come home, crack, drugs. Oh, come home. My mother would let him back in. I can't forget that. So he, he went to prison. He came home. My mother let him back in the house. All of us six kids were like, daddy's home, daddy's home. You know, we want my father back. We want my father. He's our father. We love him. Come in the house. And then the cycle would repeat itself. And he'd get, do the same thing over again, go back to prison. Same thing. It probably happened, I'd say, three three times at a minimum, maybe four so from like the age of seven till about 13, till I was about 13 years old, um, my father did most of that time in prison, right? Um, but the last prison sentence and all of those years from my, from my, from birth until that age, the only one who, 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 who held it down was my mother. She took care of us. She was our, she was our, our saving grace. She was, she was our, you know, our protector. My father was never there. 
you know, and when he was, he was abusive and destructive. So, and your and your childhood brain would forget about all the bad shit and just hope that your dad was going to be the 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 good moments that dad oh, yeah. you had with dad because yeah, he was all father we loved him you know yeah. and then when him and my mother were doing good and in a good place it was nice to see you know that they were our parents and then we had three little sisters so i don't want to forget that it was me me and my brothers it was three boys three girls and the boys were the older oldest mm-hmm. and the girls were young so uh around the last state bid that i recall whether it was the third or fourth um he came home and be, as the cycle started to repeat itself for the for the final time it wasn't his final state prison sentence but it was it was the beginning of the end of my home structure mm-hmm. in the home that i once knew um he he it was my childhood home we were we were about 13 i was about 13 I was about 13 years old, and I noticed my mother started to not be around, and, uh, like, something wasn't right. Like, she was in the house, but she was in the room. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, what the fuck's going on? Why is she? She hasn't been out in three days. She's been in the room for three days. And uh, then she'd be out, and then a week or two go by, and my mother would be MIA again, but in the house but just like in the room and we started to put two and two together i mean kids ain't dumb and um my mother was in there free basement with my father you know what i mean they were smoking crack and shit and uh we used to go in there when they were sleeping and find big ass blow torches fucking cans canisters and we'd want to light it because we were fucking knuckleheads and we'd want to see the f- blow, play with a blow torch um one time i walked in and pushed the door open, and my mother was sitting on the bed, on the end of the bed with her back to me. And she turned around, turned her head, and looked towards the entrance of the door. And I seen her face, and and I, as I pushed the door open, I felt something, like, behind the door. And I pulled it, looked behind the door. And it was my father, and he was he was holding in, like, uh, the, the hit that he just took. And he was like, and I was like, what the fuck are you doing back there? And he's like. He couldn't hold it in no more. And he blew out a big ass cloud of crack, and uh, so uh, there was that. And then, uh, and what do you remember thinking or feeling in that? Well, I was already aware that them they were in there smoking crack, right. and I knew that's what he was. That's what he was doing. But it was I'll never forget, I'll never forget that visual. You know, of him with his chest all puffed up because he was holding in the hit that he just blasted trying to hide from you yeah he was hiding from me behind the door but i was banging i was bumping into him right. I, something wasn't letting me open the door fully and i looked behind the door and he was in there he was back there with a fucking hit a crack in his chest and uh so i closed the door whatever and uh i started to, i of my brothers and sisters i saw i started to uh rebel i was like fuck them Fuck my mother, fuck my father, I don't want nothing to do it. What really made me say fuck my mother was, of all the um, embarrassment, all the 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 shame that I had because my parents, my, my father was this way. When I saw my mother do it, when my mother went that way, I was, it was the end for me. 
for me, it was like it was worse yeah, for was you like, than it was worse than him. Mother, my mother chose that that route. I was so heartbroken and so devastated. Plus, she was your last hope. Yeah, she was. She was the the backbone. And when when I when she did that, we were abandoned in my eyes. They abandoned us, all of them. And it was and, and it was my job to take care of my brothers and sisters. My job in your mind then. Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't my and probably literally as well. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't joking. Um, because my mother wasn't even available anymore. Really, you know, I couldn't. You know, she wasn't doing handling the things. The deal we got kicked out. We were in Catholic school from first to sixth grade. And my mother worked at, over at Bingo at the church. She worked the Bingo. She'd call the numbers for for Bingo, and she'd you know set up the Bingo tables, and they gave her a discount on the tuition for Catholic school. And uh, because of all of that, she stopped showing up, and they 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 threw me, me they threw all of us out of the Catholic school. We couldn't pay the tuition. My mother my mother was getting high on welfare checks and everything else. Um, were you guys going hungry? We'd have to go knock on doors for for tea, uh, for for dollars. My mother would send us around the corner to neighbors and ask for a few dollars to to get uh, some milk, some milk and cookies, or some some bread for the house. We were borrowing money. My mother had to, but she'd send us to go borrow the money from neighbors that lived on on our floor. Neighbors that lived on our floor, parents of our friends. Mm-hmm. My mother, my mother sent me up here, asked me if she can borrow five dollars. My mother sent us up here if you see if you had two dollars to get a loaf of bread i I can't imagine how humiliating that the that worst is. the worst so when did you turn to to drugs so when my mother went that route, I wasn't willing to deal with the the, the shame I wasn't willing to deal with the embarrassment and to have because i it was so traumatizing all these years, my father being like like my friends were devastating they were fucking vicious. And they would talk shit about my father and and my life, and it was it was hurtful, man. And so, to, the thought of my mother walking down the street like a crackhead was was a no go for me. It was like, all right, well, I'm done. Fucked all of them. Fuck, I'm, I'm out. And I uh, I ran away. I left my brothers. I, I wouldn't say I ran away for like. Cross state lines or or left. Mm-hmm. I never left the neighborhood, but I didn't, and I didn't leave for long. I was a little kid. I was thirteen years old. My mother came out looking for me. I wasn't coming home, and she she found me. She kicked me in the ass, and she told me get home. Let's go get the fuck home. And so she's dragging me down the street. I'm like fuck you, and uh, I'm all, I'm a hurt kid. I want to you know it makes me want to cry because I can remember that that uh that emotion i mean that that i can remember it and i'm like fuck you man i ain't going nowhere with you i hate you i told her i fucking hate you and uh i never even told my father i hate you but i told her i hate you for what you did and for what you're doing and uh she uh shortly after that threw in a towel and all the years of my my father getting thrown out by, thrown out by my mother, he always found a way back into our lives, and my mother couldn't she couldn't do it no more. Especially after her thirteen year old son tells her mm-hmm. that he hates her, it must have struck. It must have done something because she was she she left and she told all of us. Me and my she told me she told my brothers and sisters 
get your clothes on. Let's go. We're leaving. We're we're, we're gone. She said, I, if I can't get rid of this fucking piece of shit, then I got to go. And uh, she packed up all my brothers and sisters, and I told her, I ain't going nowhere with you. And she left with everybody but me. I stayed with my father. I told her, I'm not going nowhere with you. I fucking hate you. And uh, and she left. She went downtown to Fulton, Chelsea area. And uh, <clears throat> I stayed in the, my childhood apartment. Um, and uh, one of the, we had a three-bedroom apartment. All of a sudden, I had my own room. So that was cool. Because, you know, you always want your own room as a kid. Um, so I had my own room, and uh, we had an extra room. And uh, within about two weeks, I'd say, my little brother left down there and came up. He didn't want to, he didn't want to be down there. Was she still getting high? She was. Yeah. She, In fact, she never stopped. I would say she she functioned, but she never stopped until even her passing. It was a large factor in my mother, you know, not living she died at 62. She smoked two packs a day, did coke probably up to maybe a couple months before she died. Um, but my little brother came back uptown and he uh, moved in with us. So me and my little brother had a, a bedroom of our own. My sisters and my and my older brother stayed with my mother. They were in, they got enrolled in school down there and. Uh, that started a life of drugs and crime for me and my little brother. Um, my Did, father. Were you in a gang or was this just kind of uh, a loose association of guys with uh, schemes? No gangs. No gangs, no names. Just if that's what you, if, if Was it just like a, a, the same crew of guys? Yeah, we were a crew. We were, we were a crew of neighborhood guys with some generational um influence that was passed down from older guys we had a very strong strong influences i'd say strong strong examples of uh the life on the street gotcha um and would they I, I come from an Irish neighborhood where uh, where the Irish uh you know kind of controlled and uh and so we had we had we all aspired to um I'd say evolve into that into that life the mob um the mob and any type of organized crime was was uh something that we we uh we try to model our lives after, um, and it was it was pretty uh, it was pretty uh, pretty. It was it was, I would say we were, we we were coming up around the tail end of it, mm -hmm. where it was like uh, you know in the, in the eighties in the eighties early nineties it was kind of dying out. Guys were get, got, getting life sentences and uh, rack, Rico Act people were getting put away for forever. And um, but we you know we we were. I was I was probably 16, 17 years old and you know 15 from from the time I was on the street and and can read um I was reading about you know ma mafia and and mob 
organized crime, regardless of the uh, of the uh, ethnicity, or if there was an organized crime group, you know, it was in the papers in the city. You come out, come out your building. There's grocery store. There's a bunch of stack of newspapers there, and then you mm-hmm. see the, the headlines on t- on the top page, and you right. grab it and say, "Oh shit, look and read this." And a lot of times, it can't. It was about people I know, people in my neighborhood. You know, um, I'd come out my house. Oh, so so anyway, my father wound up turning my house into a crack house. He 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 started selling crack out of my house, and. uh and um and using crack out of my house and i had local dr- local neighborhood uh you know drug dealers uh kind of creating i mean operating out of my house my right. mother was no longer there my childhood was a drug den my childhood home was the new spot it became the new spot and uh this i was out on the street with no parental guidance anymore my mother was gone my sisters and and i and i now i'm downstairs and on the avenue Hanging out to all hours of the night with no one telling me shit, and uh, no one was ever going to tell me shit again. Except, and did you find freedom and exhilaration in that, to, despite the sadness and anger? No, I didn't. I was always, I always, I was always sad about um, my my home and my and my family and the way things turned out. I I always wished that things would go back to normal. I always did, and and even more when things were dark, when times got dark for me, and I wound up in situations and environments, I just wish that things could have been different. Are there any that spring to mind? Any situations? The dark days. Well, yeah. you know, um, being shrunk, I eventually started to use drugs. Right. And when I was peeking through peak holes and underneath doors and fucking. Because you know, of the paranoia of smoking crack? No, just no, not the paranoia. I would say more the come down, more the, more the come down when it was all over and your and, and your life's, you know, up in shambles and you don't and you just been on a mission on a, getting high for six days, haven't slept, haven't ate. You lost fifteen twenty pounds. Um, you know, you've been just acting out and doing fucking deviant shit and. And you're like, what the fuck is? But you're just a kid. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't, you don't know what the fuck's going on. How did this happen? How the fuck did this happen? You know. And uh, so when you're in those places mm-hmm. and you're trying to come out of it, and you're just like full of remorse and regret, those are the times you say, "Man, I just wish fucking things could be go back to normal." Kind of like a, a prison of your own making, or Without at least doubt. of your family's own oh, you know, yeah. making. It's Creed, Creed came out with an album in 1996, I think it was, called My Own Prison. And uh, on the cover was a guy with his head in his hands, balled up in the corner. And I could relate to that album cover like no one else. That album cover was me. So were the lyrics. Um, and they became a good band. A band, one of my favorites. Um, so, I mean, this is a pretty long story, right? It's okay. Um, so, uh, I I don't want to forget this part. I just don't want to leave this this part out. While my mother, before my mother left the house, um, and moved out with my brothers and sisters. Her brother, her younger brother, was an intravenous drug user, 
And he was in my life. He was my favorite uncle. He was my mother's little brother. Mm. Was diagnosed with um, AIDS in 1988 from prison. They let him out because at the time... They they knew nothing and there, there was nothing they could do for him. He they released him before his before they just released him because he was going to die and they they didn't want him. They wanted it was like a mercy release. Mm-hmm. He still had years on his sentence, and they released him. He had been in prison, in and out just like my father. And every time he'd come out like the Hulk, jacked up, huge tree trunk, neck muscles from you know mm-hmm. working out in jail. This time he came out like a like a stick. And uh, and he and he passed away in 1988 of of AIDS, and um, that was pretty hard for me because he was my favorite uncle. I was 14 when he passed away. Um, so that was one of that was one of a, a traumatizing time in my life. Um, another another scenario, I would say my first um, my first experience with. Um, death was a childhood friend of mine. He was the goalie on my hockey team. Uh, we were we were all you know we'd all be out and about skating and hanging out on the avenue and shit. And we'd hang out. There used to be this abandoned highway. It wasn't Joe Mullen from yeah, your neighborhood. Joe, Joe Mullen, Brian Mullen, both from like blocks in my neighborhood. Like everybody knew them. Everybody knew the Mullins. Yeah. They were role models for all of us. Everybody played hockey in my neighborhood. Yeah. For for the listener, uh, they were NHL stars in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, Joe Mullen was the first American-born hockey player to score five hundred goals. Um, Lean into the mic just a little bit, if you would. Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, so so they were all hanging out up on this. The, the the West Side Highway used to have an elevated portion that was abandoned. And uh, I mean, it tore it down in, in probably the early '90s, start of the the 1990s. But my neighborhood used to hang out up there and barbecue, listen to radios, is when and smoke pot, take mescaline and acid, and trip out up there on the on the, on the highway. And it's where everybody hung out. And my friend was up there. Uh, and he decided to skate. Oh, there was this homeless man that lived up there. And he lived in a shack on one end of the of the highway. And we used to throw rocks at him. We'd go up there, his kids, and fucking throw rocks at his house, his little homeless hut, and throw rocks at him and shit. And then he'd chase us and we'd run away. Well, one night, they were up there hanging out and... My friend decided to skate down the pier, down the highway, on his own, and this homeless guy uh, on a skateboard or inline on, on skate? skates, in, on roller skates, yeah. quads. I got you. At the time, we weren't, we didn't have rollerblades yet, and uh, my friend skated down, and this homeless guy ran up on him and stabbed him in the head with a pitchfork. What? He was fourteen years old. Yeah, he was fourteen years old. He stabbed him in the head with a pitchfork, and then my buddy fell, tried to uh, try to. Um, Get get away, and the guy proceeded to stab him multiple times with a pitchfork, and uh, and my buddy. So you seen him? He dropped, and then there was a, there was a, a, a like a stretch of blood where he was trying to move. He moved a few feet, and then he fell, and there was more blood, and then he more, and then he crawled more and more and more, and then he just collapsed and died right there on the spot. 
and uh, he never showed up. Somebody went. People were looking for him, and then they went down to the, the down to the other end of the highway, and they found him, and he was dead. And so we were all devastated. We were all devastated in the neighborhood. My friend was murdered. He was 14 years old by a homeless man with a pitchfork. Um, we uh, what was the guy arrested? They caught him. Um, and he served probably 25 years or something. Yeah. I don't even know if he's probably... This is back in 1984. No, this was 85 or 84, I think. Um, man, I could go on for days with stories. I think we get a, we get a pretty good picture that of the, the drama of it. Yeah. I so I want to jump forward to today. It's... You've got how many days sober off of... Drugs, Get, getting no. high? Twelve. Twelve days. And uh, maybe ten years that I've that I've known you, you put together some time, you put together three months, six months, a year, and then you relapse on crack and you disappear for days. And you got a wife and you got kids, you got a house, you got a job. What yeah. what what is going through your mind and your body when you make the decision to get high again? Are there certain things that are, well, you feel are pushing you towards that? Um, well, it it was crack for a long time. Then it became, then I hadn't done crack for years. And I did, uh, I started to relapse on pain meds like mm -hmm. Vicodin, um, uh, Oxy. Percocet, Oxycontin. I got into all of that, and that was my go-to. I don't know. Um, you know, um, I never, for, for me, I always, I never really closed the door on that life. Like, the door has been cracked open. Is Is it because there's a voice in your head that says, I can get away with it one more time without drastic consequences? Or is it that I don't, I can't imagine living without this escape hatch? Yeah, it, that's what it is. I think it's the latter. Um, you know, I've all, I've never really slammed the door on 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 that that crutch, that that uh, ability to not feel. People make they make they they make something, but they never make a decision. I don't know if you know the other part of that, but they make. They make a, a commitment, or they make a commitment, but never a real decision. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, yeah, I, I'm, I'll, you know, I was just doing it, but a, an actual decision where it's done, never again. I mean, I did, I thought I did, but clearly I didn't. And it's been, it's been a, it's been a, a life vest for me for so long. You know, um, the whole. Criminal mind, being criminal minded, has saved me, and it's what fed me and my family. And I don't mean my children; I mean my brothers and sisters. Because when uh, when shit hit the fan, and I was thirteen years old, this guy, this big drug dealer in the neighborhood, uh, took me under the wing and put me on a corner and had me making hand to hand sales to uh, all of his clientele and i established uh this what he called face on an, on a street 
everyone knew my face. They knew I was the guy, the go-to guy. People from all over the fucking region would come, and they knew that I was the guy. I was out, I was on the block, and it was my block. It was it was his block, but it was my block because he was never there. Right. And um, when shit didn't work out, he was he was selling drugs in my at, he he was storing all his shit in my house because my father was mm. a crackhead. So he he let uh, he. He was paying me a salary while storing the material in my house. And my father was, uh, was uh, you know, mad that he felt he wasn't being taken care of enough. And uh, so he, he put an end to it. My son's not working for you no more. But he knew I was selling drugs on the corner. You know, that was mm-hmm. my, and I was, but after my father made me stop selling drugs for this guy, I started selling my own drugs. And. The guy didn't want problems with my father because my father was kind of a maniac. He was a real, he was a, he was a little bit of a, of a sick dude, you know. And so, you know, this particular dude didn't, I, I know for sure that he, 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 he didn't want any part of that. He didn't want any part of that. So he just stood, he stand, he stood down. He was like, I'm not fucking with that. Fuck it. This kid is stepping on my toes. And I started selling to his customers and I became Let's put it this way. From the age of 13 years old till 25, I never had an issue creating a buck. I could turn $10 into 20 and then f- keep flipping it within seconds. I ha- I mean, and days. If you gave me $100, I'd turn it into a grand in a couple days because everybody knew me. And I sold everything. And I knew where to get everything. And I knew where. I knew who was who. and And I was the... The most interact. I, I interacted most with the street that out of anyone I knew. No one, no one was. Did you get busted? I did. I I, I made I I I've made three felony sales to to undercover cops in my in those days. Um, I uh, was involved in a, a large heroin operation with a friend of mine who who who, who committed a homicide. He killed some dude. Shot him. Um, shot him eighteen times. Um, and is serving a twenty-eight years prison sentence. Um, I did, I did probably two years in prison, a year in state prison, a year in in Rikers Island, and I did three years in drug rehabilitation. So I've been in institution for at least five years of my life. And, and so, which clique would you join up with when you were? Because most, in, in jail? most prisons and jails, it's along racial lines. So. No, it is out in the West Coast. It's not like that in New York. Oh, I mean, no. Well, the funny thing is, that's a good question. It's funny because I always, um, being half Irish, half Puerto Rican, I had the ability to to be a chameleon. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I, was, I, wouldn't, I, mean, I wasn't part of the black clique, but I could hang out with the white boys, and I could hang out with the, 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 poor, the Spanish. Mm-hmm. Either place I went, I was accepted 100%. 100% by both both sides, and they did not see me as the other. If I was with the Puerto Ricans, I was a fucking Puerto Rican. And if I was with the white boys, I was a white boy. And it was a good, it was a good little, it was a good, it, it, it was, it was kind of, it was always something, it was, I felt it was a blessing. It, 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 it protected me, that, that, that kind of ability to, to, uh, coexist mm-hmm. in hostile environments you know with different groups and not be 
seen as somebody just be accepted by by so i was able to live i was able to eat and 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 i was able to have a lot of um support from from more than what most people can 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 pull from i'd say uh yeah so i did time in prison and uh um and, and jails and institutions and uh um and then i did a lot of a lot of drugs and alcohol for a lot of years and um and how did you wind up uh, falling into the job you have today, which is a, uh, we won't get too specific, but it's a legal job and it's working, it's a union job. And how did you make the transition from all of this into uh, something that's legal um, and that has afforded you the ability to um, buy a house and have a family? I'm, I've been very blessed. I don't. I can't. I can't. I. I don't know how or why. I know that. I believe in a, a power and a God. I believe in God, and I believe. And I've seen. I've seen him work in my life more than once. Like I, I when I was having. A, I was having a debate with an individual who didn't have a, a faith in in a God in God, and I, and he was like. He he posed, He said something like, "What what what uh what makes you think there's a God?" I'm like, "Let me tell you something. I've witnessed the I've witnessed and felt the hand of God in my life so many times, and it's if you're listening and you're paying attention, you would too. You know what I mean, but." Um, my mind was open. My mind was open. I was in, I was, things should have been, things, things were out of, out of control. And, and, uh, and I was, I was never, never, uh, I was always taken care of. I was always taken care of. I was on my own. I was able to feed myself. I was able to feed my, 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 my family. Um, anything, most of the, uh, the darkness and, and and that happened when I was when I started to grow up and I was out on the street on my own was of my own doing. You know what I mean? But even then, somebody was watching over me. You know, um, I was always I was always blessed. Um, so I come from a neighborhood of blue collar union uh working people everybody has a a good union job and uh probably has a lot to do with the fact that um you know there was they you know my neighbor they ran a lot of the rackets and in, in the un, in the unions in 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 the area they c controlled construction and yeah they controlled a lot of the, the industry right. especially the unions and stuff and so um people were working for these these uh unions and um they evolved into you know higher higher uh responsibilities in those unions and became heads and and uh i would say at least influ influences and they were friends mm -hmm. you know especially me being on the street and being a hustler from the age of 13 you know if you wanted pot you'd come to you'd come to me if you wanted coke you'd come to me so no one's a saint. I knew everybody. I know who was doing what. 
and I knew everything, and uh, and I and I knew and they, and they and they knew me. So, um, you know, even if it was even if it was a guy with a good job, a union, you know, uh, uh, you know, policeman, didn't matter if he was off and he was off duty and he wanted to smoke a joint or something. He knew he come. He knew I was out there. I was on the block. Come see me. I'll, I'll take care of you. Every day. I'm not proud of none of this, and I'll say that. Um, it's all a lie. That life I lived is a complete facade lie. The the anger, the 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 harm I I I, I inflicted on people was all because I was hurting. Um, the image that I displayed was all because I was hurting. And I wanted to be perceived differently. I was I I didn't want you to know who 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 I really was. I was protecting. It was a, it was a defensive mechanism for all that I was dealing with inside. And um, but when I was on the street, um, oh, I eventually evolved and became exactly like my father. Um, the 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 guy I described to you earlier, which was my father, eventually became me to the T. Um, my father became a pimp, da- chain dangling, fur coat wearing, hookers on the corner, pimp. I seen my father stab two women. I didn't see him stab them, but I seen the wounds seconds after they were, um, knives were plunged into their body. Um, he stabbed one woman in the leg, and it was probably the worst stab wound I've ever seen anybody uh, get. She, and it was my knife. He, uh, I was in a room. He came. He knocked on my door. I was hanging out with my friends, and I had this really. At the time, I was into knives, and I had this one knife, and it was it was made with surgical steel. And uh, I was proud of it. It was my knife, surgical steel. Right. He knocks on my door. The music is blasting. We're in the smoking blunts. I, I open the door. I'm like, Dad, what's going on? At the time, my, my house was a crack house. I had my own room, and I was selling drugs out of the house, and I was at, down on the corner. He says, uh, Papi, he goes, let, let me see a knife, because I had showed it off to him or whatever. He, he says, let me see a knife. So I pull it out of my back pocket. I pass it to him, and I close the door. So I slam the door. Yeah, get out of here. Get out of here. You know what I mean? And I have really no respect for him. He was a drug addict. I was a pothead, but I, and I was sniffing coke and shit. I, I went back to my friends, and I'm hanging out in, in my bedroom smoking and listening to music. A few seconds later, I open the door. Gracie thinks someone's at the door. <laughs> I hear banging at the door. I open the door. My father goes, here's your knife back. It's already been used, just so you know. I said, what? So I, I fucking pushed him aside and went outside into the living room of the apartment and, and one of his prostitute um, girls was in the, f- in the corner on the floor holding onto a leg crying and I walked up to the the victim and I looked at her and I looked down and I seen her leg he stabbed her right in the thigh and it went all the way I mean it, all you seen was like she was a black girl and all you see with this big ass red hole, and it went all the way, all the way into her thigh, like far, and it was wide open, and you see the meat, 
and the blood and it was like really meaty and it was like a raw piece of meat like a steak um and uh and then he he stabbed he stabbed my stepmother as well um who oh one of those prostitutes be well i i i think we we i know i know it's like how, how do i stop i mean yeah, it just well, doesn't end Let's wrap it up with with just a, a question that I, I'm sure there isn't necessarily an answer to it. But what do you what work do you feel like remains for you personally to evolve forward into the guy that you want to be, which I assume is a guy who can stay sober. But don't let me put words into your mouth. I appreciate that, Paul. It's a, it's it's it's, it's really I, I appreciate you just uh, being able to um, to think of, of such a good question because it is it is something I I, I I should consider or probably want have you know and uh, you know have have kids and um, I'm single income household. Mm-hmm. I uh, a lot a lot of people depend on me. I have three. Ki- I have four kids. Four kids. Um, three that are eighteen and under. Um, they need me. You know, I never wanted to be. I never wanted to be what. I didn't want to see the things that I saw, and I've always wanted to give them better. And. uh I'm older. I, I want to be better. Um, I love my kids. I love my. I love my wife. I love my family. I love my blessings, and I and I'm grateful for them. And um, I've not done a great job at truly um, showing my gratitude. You know, um, and uh, so. I want to, I mean, I, so can you just repeat the question? What do you hope for as, as you move forward, uh, to try to grow into the person that you want to be, which I assume includes being able to maintain sobriety. What do you hope for in terms of your personal growth? I hope to, I hope to be able to move past and 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 move on from the past. I hope to be able to, because I live with trauma. I live with it's like a post traumatic stress disorder. Oh, I think that's clear. Yeah, <laughs> the um, images, the certain smells, certain things. I I, I live with flashbacks um, of situations and scenarios that I've been in. Um, Anything can trigger it. Um, I found relief in in spirituality. I found relief in the program. I found relief um, in fellowship in, the, in my friends. And uh, anytime I've anytime I've stayed and embraced that and those those qualities and those um, those gifts, my life was. Um, it was great. And I, I mean, I've been in, I've been, I've known you for 10 years and, uh, let's say 10 years, 
to make it easy because I've been, but I've been in California for almost 15. Mm -hmm. August will be 15. Um, but let's say 10 years. In 10 years, I would say, like, I, I went out and relapsed multiple times, right? But they've all lasted maybe a month, two weeks, and then I mm -hmm. come back to the program, right? Let's say three months. So, if I mean, for the better part of 10 years, I've been sober. Mm -hmm. If you add all of those relapses, if let's say it was 10 relapses, right? If it was 10 relapses and I got, and I, and each lasted a month, mm -hmm. I was sober nine years. So I think I did learn a lot, but I, I struggle. I struggle with, uh, I struggle with something, Paul. I struggle with something. And, um, have you ever thought of, uh, trying EMDR therapy? I, I think it'd be worth a shot. I mean, I'm, I'm not a mental health professional, but people that I know who struggle with PTSD, uh, many, many people have found profound relief from doing EMDR therapy. It's, it's specifically, it started as a way to treat vets returning from, from war. And, um, it, it helps. Bring the trauma out of your body, which is where know, I don't most, even know what that is. We'll talk about it after. It's it stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing, um, and, but it it it's it can really work wonders. And uh, we will. I have somebody here locally that that I've worked with uh, before, and some of the effects. Um, for me were profound uh, i could feel my body felt lighter lighter and like it had been oiled like my joints moved you know mm -hmm. i just you know somebody that i just recommended um try it because he has just struggled so much with anger and he has done three sessions so far and he was hanging out with a buddy of his the other day and his buddy goes what what happened to the angry guy his friend just after three sessions, his friend could tell that that the anger had lifted from uh, from him. Um, yeah, you know, um, I'd love to give it a shot. Yeah, I'd love well, to give it a shot. Well, buddy, I appreciate you coming by and uh, opening up and uh, talking about such difficult, intense things. And I want to thank you for you know for your friendship over these last ten years. We've um, We've had a lot of laughs and, and a, yeah, a lot of great. hugs, man. And you're sure. just somebody, when you walk in a room, I'm just always fucking glad to see you. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate you asking me to, to, to come over and talk. I, I apologize if I rambled and just was you telling ramble. more stories and shit. No, no, because I, I, your story has always fascinated me. And, and I, I wanted to, to hear, I didn't want to just have that be the sum total of it. You know, I wanted to to hear who the the little kid is underneath that's still struggling with that. Hmm? Were you able to get a glimpse? I, yes, yes, yeah. I was. I think, and I think the listeners have. Um, and and that's one of the things I love about you is you you have not been crushed by it. That there's still this light inside you that is truly miraculous. That you that you still have the capacity to love and to be sensitive 
and to not be jaded and bitter and and that I think is one of the things that I that I love about you. That's fucking weird you just said that, dude. You're the second person that told me that this week. The second person in the fr- in the first and you're the second person that's ever told me that. But the second person <laughs> the second person the first person only happened two two, three days ago. Oh wow. A person who I had who I'm, I've been having deep conversations with and we've been and uh and he told me that. That's cool, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. I love you, pal. Love you too, man. Thanks. I've been wanting to have Kenny on for probably three, four years. I'm glad we finally got the chance to sit down and hear his his life story as painful as it as it is. One of our sponsors for today is Squarespace. Turn your dream into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more. Squarespace is the tool for you. Their templates are beautiful. Their powerful e-commerce functionality helps you sell anything online. Their analytics help you grow your site in real time. And everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. Nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Buying domains is simple. You get the the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. Head to squarespace.com slash mental for a free trial. And I can tell you, uh, I have designed uh, websites with Squarespace and it is as promised. And I found it really intuitive and simple and very happy with the results. So head to squarespace.com slash mental for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code mental to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash mental and use offer code MENTAL. This is from the Loves Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself, Holy shit, it's almost Christmas. And she writes, I love New York City around Christmas time. I love that feeling of motivation to clean my apartment. Oh my God, do I wish I had that one. I love being the big spoon for my giant boyfriend. I love buying a meal for someone in need. I love overcoming my... Uh, eating disordered thoughts and actually eating when I'm hungry and not within my pre-planned meals for the day and not feeling shame or anxiety for having a snack. Thank you for that. That has to be a really, really tough gorilla to dance with having uh, disordered eating because you got to eat. Any comments to make the podcast better i would love a survey only episode every now and then we have done survey uh, only episodes previously but it has been a little while there's a part of me that's always worried that that people don't like the surveys and there's a part of me that worries that people don't like everything that i do represent touch feel see taste or I'm generally interested in. (laughs) This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Lala. She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, Her words. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. 
When I was about eight or nine, I had, quote, inappropriate contact with a female babysitter who was about 12. There were multiple occasions of us kissing and fondling each other. I feel like this was primarily instigated by her, but I also feel I was a willing participant. I tend to downplay these incidents since we were the same gender and she was so young herself. I also assume that she must have had some kind of trauma in her past to have instigated these episodes with me. And this is a great example of the importance of separating someone's culpability or prosecutability, someone who has abused us, and the importance of just dealing with the feelings that were left in the wake of it, because it's not about punishing that other person or assigning blame to them necessarily. It's about us processing the feelings that we stuff down or the feelings that remain with us. Um, I also assume that she must have had some kind of... Uh, so I cut her a lot of slack and tend to downplay the impact that these experiences had. Funny thing, I remember finally teaching reaching a point where I felt uncomfortable with what was happening, and so I lied and told her my mom found out and said we had to stop. I remember she was mortified. I might also be considered a, quote, perpetrator, and that around the same age, I coerced my younger brother, three years younger, to engage in kissing slash fondling with me on a handful of occasions. Same thing with a female cousin. She was a couple, couple years older than me, but had a much more passive personality, so I feel like the, quote, responsible one. All of this happened around the same time. I don't talk to the cousin much, but I do have a relationship with my brother. I've thought about bringing it up with him, but the thought makes me physically ill. Also, I wonder if 30 years later, it would just do more harm than good. I think that would be a good thing to talk to a trauma therapist about, someone that has experience and knowledge in childhood sexual abuse. Because this shit is complicated, especially if it involves people that are still in our lives or that we want to still be in our lives. Uh, I also have vague memories of other inappropriate occasions that I mostly block from my memory and don't really let surface. So bottom line, I'm not entirely sure what's true and what's not. For instance, I have a memory of my semi-drunk father, who interestingly later turned out to be gay, convincing me to dance with him in the dark with no one else around after he came home from some event. I was maybe 11. I remember feeling uncomfortable and like there was a weird sexual vibe, but I pushed it out of my mind. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My mother, with with whom I have a fabulous relationship now, was physically abusive and unstable when I was growing up. Two memories in particular come to mind. One, I was about eight and must have done something to upset her. She whipped me with a belt. Later, she took me to swim class at the YWCA, and as I was undressing, she, undressing, she must have seen marks because she made a comment like, I don't think you're feeling well. Let's skip class and just sit on the bleachers and watch. It wasn't until years later that I realized she didn't want anyone to see the belt marks. Two, I remember being around 11, my brother was 8, and my mom was driving these windy, treacherous roads heading up to Mount Hood in Oregon. I can't remember the context exactly, but I remember her saying something like, maybe I should just drive off the side of the mountain. I wonder what would happen. Wow. I remember feeling like this woman is sick and irrational, but I'm a kid and I have to survive until I can legally leave at 18. In fact, that was frequently how I felt about my mother. 
She's crazy, but I'm a kid, so I just have to survive until I'm old enough to leave. My father. My father was my absent hero. I revered and adored him. His approval meant everything to me, but as a, quote, high-powered attorney, time with him was scarce, and I always felt like I was begging for crumbs of his attention. There are two occasions I remember that were particularly painful. One, I was about eight and struggling with math. My father is exceptionally good at math, but math does not come easily to me at all. I asked him to help me with my math homework. He was trying to explain, and it just wasn't clicking. He must have thought I was being deliberately obstinate and lazy because I just wasn't getting it and kept saying I don't understand, which was true. He called me a little shit and sent me away. I remember sitting on the stairs below his office feeling completely worthless. Two. Second memory, and by far the most painful. I was about 16 and my parents were on the verge of divorce. We were having one final dinner in a nice restaurant, a last-ditch effort at trying to save the facade of a happy, functional family. I was going through a really hard time. In retrospect, I think I was clinically depressed. About halfway through dinner, I started to uncontrollably cry. Not for attention. I swear I just couldn't hold it in. My mom got up and left the table. My father looked at me with what felt like such a hateful expression and said, what the fuck's the matter with you? That was the seminal incident that to this day, at nearly 40 years old, has made it virtually impossible for me to reach out to others for help and connection, even though I am desperate to connect with others in an authentic, meaningful way. I live a very isolated existence because I don't trust people not to hurt me, and much of the time I feel worthless. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, definitely. I actually have a very good relationship with my mother. In all honesty, she's probably my best friend. I think divorcing my father did her a world of good. She's become deeply religious, and as a self-identified agnostic slash atheist, we mostly avoid the topic of religion. She has quite an extensive trauma history herself, of which I know a little about, so I understand, quote, why she is the way she is. I also have a pretty good relationship with my dad. He's wealthy and has paid for my college education and has helped with the down payment on my condo. I'm grateful, but that money also complicates things. Our relationship is somewhat superficial. My dad values status, youth, and beauty. Growing up, I remember him weighing himself four to five times a day. In my 20s, there were brief periods where I was able to maintain the stereotypical thin, beautiful image slash persona, and I can tell that made him really proud. Now I'm 38, fat, and frumpy, and I'm sure I'm a disappointment in that regard, but he's savvy and compassionate enough not to address it. Darkest thoughts. Ugh, this topic. Sexually, I have some really fucked up interests. Even though this is an anonymous survey, I can barely stand to be honest. Anything with a power dynamic turns me on. The rougher, the better. Uh, male in control, female passive. I have a feeling I might be a latent pedophile. Not in real life. I've never seen a child and thought I'd like to do something sexual to him or her. Ever, thank God. But if I saw pictures of child porn, yeah, I can't deny it would probably turn me on. So far, I've managed to avoid scouring the internet for child porn because intellectually, I appreciate how incredibly damaging and awful it is. But yeah, that and violence against women are a turn-on, and the progressive feminist side of myself hates me for that. I've said this many, many times on the podcast, but 
really often the things that turn us on are the things that we have anxiety about in real life, either from present day situations or past situations. And it is not at all a comment on who we are morally. It's what we do with the fantasies that, that matters. Darkest secrets. Oh, Jesus, so many. Right now, I lead a hermit-like functional life. Good job, good home in a good neighborhood. Don't socialize at all. My one thing is I am obsessed with trying heroin. I've heard it's the ultimate way to numb. You know the cliches and orgasm times at 10,000. I live in Portland and have tried to surreptitiously cop on the streets, but I don't know what I'm doing and haven't really been brave enough to try in earnest. I feel like I'm at a breaking point and it's just a matter of time. Thank you so much for going so, so deep on this one and being so honest. And it, I can feel the pain that, that you're in and the wanting to numb. And I, it, I'm sure it, it's probably even obvious to you, but the, you know, the answer isn't to run from your feelings, but to, to deal with them and find people who are healthy and trustworthy to help you process them. That's, that's the way to do it. Cause, but I got to tell you, you know, when I am in my support group and I hear people share about heroin or especially speed balls, which is a combination of Coke and heroin, I think, oh, I never got to do that. Boy, if I relapse, that's what I would want to do. That's that's the attic part of my brain that romanticizes that. Even though I've heard thousands of people in my years of sobriety talk about the hellish experience of being addicted to heroin or coke. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace of mind, self-love, something who adores me and is physically attracted to me. I wonder if she meant someone. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, to some extent. And how did it go? It was a mixed bag. How do you feel after writing these things down? I don't know. Relieved but numb. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Reach out. Isolation is toxic and kills. Thank you so much for that. This is from the love survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself, but what if they are saying shit behind my back? Uh, I love getting to spend time with people who understand, knowing that even for just a little while, I get to be me. That is a great one. My 80-pound dog awkwardly crawling on my lap instead of just jumping up. I love seeing someone take my advice and having it work out for them. I love secretly giving gifts to people or finding a way to help them without them knowing it's me. I don't want the credit. I just like when they are unexpected, unexpectedly given a reason to be happy. That is such a great one. I love the feeling I get when I don't engage obsessive thoughts. I can tell myself that the dickhead on the internet isn't worth spending any, any energy thinking about. It feels like I'm finally adulting. Any comments to make the podcast better? What if, and stay here with me, Paul, Paul got a pony and recorded the show whilst atop said pony. It's funny that you mention that because I have been doing the show since day one on horseback. It's a very, very still, 
heavily drugged horse. Well, I thought it was a horse. And then one day, somebody told me, you have been sitting on a llama. And I thought, that makes sense. Why the weird neck? That makes sense why all the cowboys avoid me at the saloon. And I'm caught between a rock and a hard place because I want to move to a pony, but I also like camels. And if you think about it, isn't that what a llama is? Kind of half camel, half pony? So maybe I'll stay where I am. Is anybody still listening? This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself No More. He identifies as straight. He's in his 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And also some stuff happened, but he doesn't know if it counts and he doesn't elaborate on what happened. Uh, He's been physically and emotionally abused and doesn't elaborate on either of those. Darkest thoughts. I have a deep aversion to people. The notion of partnering with the dead is nice. I find necrophilia derogatory. I, I think he means the the word uh, necrophilia to be derogatory. They wouldn't leave you, judge you, say that it's not working out, that they have been seeing someone else. It would be unconditional and permanent love. I like the cold touch and I don't mind the smell. I've also thought of hurt, hurting others and en masse. They wouldn't laugh at me. Uh, but I don't want people to feel like I do, to feel bad. The thought of someone mentally unstable loving me, that undying fearless love for only me, no issue hurting others. They take me away and keep me just for them. Darkest secrets. I saw a guy OD and I didn't do a thing. Every moment since, I have wanted to die. The shame and guilt is immense. I don't know what I would do. I I don't think I would know what to do if somebody was ODing in in front of me. You know? Other than maybe picking up the phone. Um, I think it's time to let go of that guilt because that is... That is not benefiting you. And I think whoever that person was that passed would not have wanted their death to haunt you. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Partnering with the dead physically and emotionally. Skeptical and fearful, no one will ever accept my interest. I don't know if that is true, at least in terms of role-playing. Um... You know, from what I understand, having sex with uh, someone who is dead is illegal, I believe. Um, so I don't think that would be a healthy route to express that. Um, but why couldn't you role play? There's a lot of people out there that are open-minded and probably have a a similar interest to you. And that can sometimes be something that really helps you feel more intimate with each other. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? 
To my former significant other, I'm sorry. I never meant to hurt you. I had no idea how much my mental health was bad, was so bad. My paranoia and pain was not yours, and I'm sorry uh, you were burdened with it. What, if anything, do you wish for? To be loved. Have you shared these things with others? Yes. It didn't go badly. They said they shared the fantasy, but we never role-play or anything. I fear now it was a lie to comfort me. Well, have you brought it up again? You might bring it up again. And then you'll know. You know, one of the things that my therapist uh, has kind of ingrained in me is don't mind-read people in your life or your partner especially. You know, be willing to have those conversations to bring those things up because that builds intimacy. And, and not doing it can really drive you apart. How do you feel after writing these things down? Odd. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I hope you find someone to share these needs. Thank you for for sharing all of that. That That must be a lot to keep inside you know i think any any of us that have parts of ourselves that we're afraid to show to others for fear of being judged even if it's just thoughts bouncing around in our head it's it's um it's hard it's hard this is from the love survey filled out by Kat Marie, and she writes, I love my best friend. I met her in seventh grade, and I've never connected with someone more. She is my soulmate. I understand everything about her, and she understands everything about me. I know what unconditional love is because of her. How, how fitting that that was the, the next survey. Thank you. I love that. This is also from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Anon. And she writes, I love waking up without an alarm. I love pillow talk with my partner at the end of the day when we keep saying, okay, I'm going to bed and roll over. I love when authority figures like doctors, lawyers, or bosses, or even my conservative traditional grandmother swears. It is a great one. Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself nice DJ voice. She writes, I love when my friends or even my coworkers come to me for emotional support. I feel honored when people feel safe sharing their lives with me. I wasn't always able to be a safe person, and I know that gradually facing my own pain has taught me how to be a better friend. I love the opportunity to give love to people around me. Oh, man, do I love that one. I love that one. That is one of the best parts of being alive, when our struggles can can help us connect to somebody else who's also struggling. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as Slumberjack. Uh, and they write, oh, Gracie's, Gracie's sees a leaf moving outside, sound the alarm about her ADD. Dinner is burned, voicemail box is full, laundry is wet and waiting to be dried for two days, but at least I cleaned up my project that I never finished on my desk. About their anxiety, you know those muscles under your butt cheeks? They've been clenched for 26 years and I am just now learning I'm not supposed to be tightening my entire body as if to make myself so small no one will see me. You haven't fully relaxed until your butt cheeks feel like butter. That is a t-shirt. 
about their PTSD. One harmless teasing poke to my side belly will cast heat all over my body, render my mind blank with white rage, and cause me to swing my arms at whoever inflicted the unwanted touch to my body. Tickle me and I'll lay you out flat. About their anger issues. I'm quiet, contained, non-confrontational, but when my dad invalidates my entire being, it's like a pipe inside myself bursts and shoots hot steam out of my mouth like a dragon. My ears go mute like a bomb went off, and I can see red all around me. I scream, and it is an unbelievable release, and I hate to admit it feels good. Snapshot from their life. I spend my extra time educating doctor doctor's offices, clinical professionals, high school faculty, and students, etc., about transgender awareness, inclusion, and I speak to my own experience as well. It's been the most rewarding work I've done. I've helped save the lives of trans kids more than I thought possible. Plus, cisgender people learn a lot about their own gender and social constructs that hold them back in being authentically themselves. I've transformed lives, but the moment I step into my own house, my father strips away all my pride with single dismissive comments or patronizing looks. To him, I am weak in wasting my life because I don't have a typical job or career. He's so consumed in Fox News and debating things that are factual that he no longer is in touch with himself or reality. By the way, I'm pretty sure he is gay and is hiding hiding himself away for all these years and therefore cannot accept the way I live because I remind him too much of himself. Thank you for that. And kudos on the important work that you are doing. That is really, really cool. And this is our last survey. This is filled out by, uh, this is the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Donut Snowflakes. Oh, look, it's, it's snowing donuts. Uh, she writes, I love when a person with dentures takes their teeth out and they smile the biggest, most genuine, real smile, warms the soul instantly. I love that one. Oh my God, do I love that one. Uh, just a reminder about our uh, sponsor, OMG, yes, uh, in partnership with Indiana University and the Kinsey Institute researchers, OMG, yes, ask tens of thousands of women what was the one discovery you've made that really made your pleasure better. They found the patterns in those discoveries and organized all that wisdom into a website, omgyes.com, so everyone can make a great thing even better, women, men, and couples. Visit omgyes.com slash mental to learn more and for a special discount. That's omgyes.com slash mental. Well, thank you for supporting the podcast, especially those of you that, that support it through Patreon. You're such an important part of, of keeping this this podcast going, and we can always use more donors. There's a link to all the different ways you can support the podcast if you if you feel so inclined. Also links to all the advertisers that we mentioned. Uh, but most importantly, the whole reason I started this podcast is I wanted people to know that they are not alone. And while our external lives may vary greatly from person to person, our internal lives are so incredibly universal and that's what matters and that's the thing that connects us and if you're out there and you're stuck and you're feeling alone you are you are not alone and thanks for listening
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.